today's message is, Are You Ready for More? Part 4. We'll start with just a quick review to put the, uh, into context for us all. Uh, a simple statement. If we want what we've always had, then we can merrily keep on doing what we've always done. But if we want more, if we want more of God, if we want more of his presence and power in our lives, in our church, then do you know what? We need to tweak the dial in a few areas. We need to turn the temperature up a little bit. And that pendulum is going to have to swing in a certain direction. Some things are going to have to shift. They're going to have to intensify. They're going to have to be intentionally prioritized if we really want to see a move of God. There's a culture that we're going to have to work. There's an environment that we must create if we want to prepare the way for more and produce a soil fertile for his purposes. So far, we've looked at three elements of what we around here call kingdom culture. And today, they're in a slightly strange order on that list. Today, we're on number four, which is the fear of the Lord. Before I dive in, just to say, I'm always on the lookout. On the lookout for patterns and for trends and for consistent voices. And this is a clarion call that I'm increasingly hearing at the moment. That it's time to get that swing, that pendulum swinging back to the fear of the Lord. So here's the big idea. The big idea is that when we come together to worship as followers of Jesus, the atmosphere in the room should be instantly recognizable by a strong, tangible sense of the fear of the Lord. Here's, here's the full definition, just so we know what we're talking about when I say the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a deep and strong and weighty reverence and respect for the holiness of God, for the person of the Lord Jesus, and for the presence of of the Holy Spirit. Let me make one thing clear. In our paradigm, God is God. The throne is His. The honor is His. The glory is His. And do you know what? That should show. And here's the challenge. Challenge question for you to weigh. Has contemporary Christianity, contemporary Christian culture, moved away a little bit from that? Has the pendulum swung quite possibly towards other well-intended emphases, but at the expense of the fear of the Lord? Is it possible for the spiritual temperature to gradually slip and slide until we become, if we're honest, 
a little blasé or flippant, slightly apathetic, what John in Revelation called lukewarm. And then one day we look around the room and realize we've lost that razor-sharp reverence and awe. And again, here's the point. If we really do want more, what this series is all about, we need to keep a close eye on where that pendulum is swinging. Now, I think it's important before we, before we go too far with this, have a little look at the biblical pattern and the biblical precedent. What, what should it look like? How did the fear of the Lord fit both in the Old Testament and the New Testament context? How did our Bible heroes relate to the holiness and the glory of God? Well, let's look at the Old Testament pattern. Famous verse. This verse explains how God's people were to approach him. And it's 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Here's another one, Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, now this picture of climbing the mountain of the Lord was a metaphor for coming into his presence. And our hands must be clean and our heart must be pure. Why? Because God is holy and he calls us to holiness. Because God is worthy and he calls us to honor his presence. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire which calls for reverential fear. And this should be reflected in how we come to him. Let me put it like this. I was trained at least. When you're going to friends and family for dinner, you come with a bottle of wine and a bunch of flowers. This week we had an event at Toby's school. How did we come? I put on a smart jacket and my very best behavior. <laughs> Yesterday, Joel and I went to Nottingham Forest. How did we come? dressed in Garibaldi red and singing Mull of Kintyre. And that was relevant to the two Nottingham Forest sports in the room, possibly three if I can see Steve. So how do we come before the Lord? There's a protocol. 1 Chronicles 16, 29, 30. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. I want you to press a quick pause for a second. I want to clarify 
something important. I'm asking how we come before the Lord. But here's some really good news for the curious. We have God's warm and open and clear invitation to come to him. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross has opened the door. It has created the way. It has removed the impediment of our sin. And though he is holy, and though he is mighty, and though he is awesome, we can indeed come. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that verse. Matthew 11.28, come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The good news is we can indeed come. The invitation has been warmly extended. The question is, how do we come? The answer is humbly. The answer is reverentially. With due honor. And on our knees. What the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. A couple of minutes looking at the New Testament pattern. Acts 2, 42, 43. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Acts 9.31, this is written just after Paul's conversion. Saul became Paul. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. The third one, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. For our gospel, Paul wrote, came to you not merely in the form of words, but in mighty power, infused with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And we see here three ways that the fear of the Lord impacted the early church. First one is, is that sense of awe. Second one, the, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, a lifestyle characterized by this thing called the fear of the Lord. Look at those briefly. The first, the first thing that clearly defined and shaped the whole culture of the early church was this sense of awe. And there's a crucial balance that we must never lose. That though we are called into intimacy of relationship with him, and we are, and we're immeasurably grateful for that, but though we are called to intimacy, that does not for one second take away from the awesomeness of God Almighty. And do you know what? We must never lose that sense of awe. In fact, I reckon we need rather more of that. And where God comes, there should be and there will be a weightiness, a gravity, a tangible sense of awe. 
Acts 2, 43, a deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone. Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. Do you know what? If we want the awe, we'll need the fear. And the reverence and worship and the humility and the surrender that go with it. And those postures constitute our invitation to the presence and power of God. And then secondly, in that place, his convicting voice is able to break through and, and start changing and renewing and healing things. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 again. For our gospel came to you not merely in the form of words, but in mighty power infused with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit prompting and pricking and stirring our hearts. It's God warning and redirecting, even making us a little uncomfortable. Conviction is how he leads us to safety and protects us from harm. Conviction is the force that, that draws us to Jesus and away from sin. And the moral is, surprise, surprise, we need more of that. We've, we see it in, in Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, it said they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then thirdly, the, the fear of the Lord characterized their lifestyle. I'll read that one again, Acts 9.31. Then the church was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living, continuous living in the fear of the Lord. And here's the challenge. The challenge is, does the fear of the Lord characterize our lifestyle? Is it visible? Is it your, your point of difference? How much of a factor is the fear of the Lord in your decisions and in your behavior and in your priorities? We're going to dig a little bit deeper into that, and then we'll kind of wrap up and tie this all together. Does the fear of the Lord characterize your lifestyle? Can people see it on you? As I pondered this, I, I, I thought it would be helpful to take a few minutes looking at the extremes, to, to see the end points of this pendulum swing that we've been talking about. To see what it looks like when the pendulum swings right over in the direction of the fear of the Lord. And what lies at the opposite extreme. So we're going to look at what I am calling, unofficial title, the fear of the Lord pendulum. And I'm going to give you five extremes. And extreme number one is, are you looking to please God? One end of the pendulum swing, or are you looking to please man the other end of the pendulum swing? 
Colossians 1.9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And the other extreme, Proverbs 29.25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Let me, let me gently ask you some big questions. Who are you trying to impress? Are you conforming to, to kingdom culture? Or are you conforming to worldly culture? Who are you most concerned about offending? Is it the dove? Holy Spirit? Or is it the forces driving the agenda of the world? Who are you most concerned about offending? Here's another question I'm going to float out there for you. Connect group discussion possibly. Can you be a people pleaser and a God pleaser at the same time? And I reckon it comes down to which fear you. Is it the fear of the Lord on one extreme, or is it the fear of man on the other? That's pendulum swing number one. Pendulum swing number two, on one extreme we have sacred, and right over here on the other side we have profane. I'll explain what I mean by that. Verses to begin with, Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Want to see God? Want to see God in your daily life, in your relationships, in your circumstances, in your business, in your marriage? Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then 2 Timothy 2 verse 16, but shun profane and idle babbling, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and the message will spread like cancer. In your thoughts, in your words, in your humor, does the pendulum swing on one hand towards the sacred? Words like holy and pure, and godly? Or is it the profane, irreverent, disrespectful, dishonoring? Is your humor pure and innocent? Or is it close to the edge, even coarse? I'll say this. I'm convinced that the world is no longer offended by what it once was. In fact, I would say that ungodly is now arguably the norm. There once was a day when colleagues in my school staff room would apologize to me when they swore. I saw a, a bizarre example of, of this this week that I thought I'd share with you. Some of you, particularly sporty followers, might be aware of the episode last Sunday where Ugo Monya 
uh, was, who was a commentator, was at Exeter Chiefs, and he was very, very blatantly racially abused right in front of him. And he went to X, what used to be Twitter, to demand this fact. And, and I looked down the feed, and on the feed, the very first one, the very first comment was, it basically, blasphemy, blasphemy. I'll save your tender ears. Blasphemy, blasphemy, that's disgraceful. I hope you're all right, Hugo. And this person was horrified quite rightly by the racism, but perfectly happy to blaspheme like a trooper in the same sentence. Anyone else see the inconsistency there? Number three. We have a pendulum swing on one side to honor. And then on the other hand, to over-familiarity. Explain what I mean by that. One of my father-in-law's favorite lines is, is he God Almighty or is he God Almighty? 1 Timothy 1 verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. The honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know this saying, don't you? Familiarity breeds contempt. We remember, don't we, that Jesus said he could do no mighty works in his hometown essentially because of over-familiarity. It's only Jesus, the carpenter's son, Mary's son. Only Jesus. So here's the question. In your life, is Jesus treated with the utmost honor as befitting his status as King of kings and Lord of lords? Or are you at times guilty of over-familiarity, of taking him for granted, even dishonoring his presence? And I could ask this, what is... What does that mean for you in your own personal life? In what happens behind closed doors? But I could also ask, what about, what about in your church life? Does the way you behave, does the way you worship, does the way you carry yourself in church reflect the fact that the king is in the room? If Jesus were to walk into the room right now, what would you do? I reckon we would all be face down in a flash. I'm pretty sure our response wouldn't be, oh, carry on. It's only Jesus. And if the fear of the Lord is missing, what are we left with? Number four, who to go? On one hand, do we shun and run from evil? as fast as our little legs will carry us? Or on the other hand, do we belittle it? Do we entertain it? Do we humor it? Proverbs 3 verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. That little word and means those two things go together. You know, I reckon this is a timely challenge in the social media era, where all sorts of material is scrolling before our eyes. The good, 
the bad and the downright ugly. These are questions like this. Do you have a filter in place? Do you know how to use the fast forward button? And here's my favorite. If you've used the fast forward button three times in the episode of the same TV show, do you know where the off button is? Do you tolerate things you know you really shouldn't? Are you no longer offended by things that you would never have tolerated, say, five years ago? Is your conscience becoming seared or, or numb? Are you becoming immune to that voice of Holy Spirit conviction? Are you aware of the dove, the Holy Spirit, the convictor sitting on your shoulder? Would you do anything to avoid grieving him? The scriptural imperative is clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee the evil desires of youth. Proverbs 8, 13, to fear the Lord, here it comes again, is to hate evil. There's that pendulum swing, do we, do we shun it? Do we run away from it? Or are we just kind of playing with it a little bit? Giving it a little bit of a, of a doorway, entertaining and humoring it just a little bit. Last one, number five. Here's the pendulum swing. Are we quick to obey God? Are we quick to obey or are we quick to make excuses? Deuteronomy 6.24, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper. Philippians 2 verse 12, work hard to show the result of your salvation, obeying God with deep, reverence and fear. He put it like this. If we truly fear the Lord, obedience will be willing and precise and instant. And if we don't, it will be begrudging and it will be compromised and it will be delayed. If we truly fear the Lord, our mood won't matter, peer pressure won't matter, we will gladly comply with what his word demands. But if we don't, we will twist and contort any uncomfortable scriptural imperative until it fits our agenda or suits our preferences or feeds our fleshly and make it clear, it, it, it's not that we fear consequences, but though there are always consequences. It, it's not that we fear God's rejection. On the cross, Jesus was rejected so that we might be eternally accepted, praise the Lord. It, it's that the fear of the Lord is a form of love. It's such a deep respect that his will trumps our own. That the, the very thought of offending him grieves us. And, and that to obey him is, 
is actually taking a step towards him. And why wouldn't we want to do that? Where's the pendulum swinging in your life? Can you feel it swinging over this way? Towards the fear of the Lord. Can you feel the Lord tugging on your heartstrings? Because I think that's what God's doing in his church right now. And that's what we're attentive to, both individually and corporately as a church. Okay, let's wrap this up, tie it all up. A, a fear of the Lord's soil is richly fertile. Richly fertile. It's where seed grows faster. And it's the place of more. I'm going to close with five reasons why. Five reasons why the fear of the Lord is a richly fertile soil. And this kind of sums it all up. Number one, because if the Lord is given his rightful seat on the throne, then everything else falls neatly into alignment. Number two, because, because in the fear of the Lord's soul, there's a default to worship. There's a posture of humility. There's a culture of great honor. Fertile soil. Number three, the, the fear of the Lord slams the door on worldliness. And swings it wide open to godliness. Number four, because that fear of the Lord's soil offers God a softened and surrendered and sanctified heart. Rather than a rocky, thorny, contentious one. You know the parable of the sower. And then number five, because if his voice is the ultimate unquestioned authority then all the other names fade away. I'll tell you my dream. My dream, this is, this is what I see when I, when I close my natural eyes and I open my faith eyes. This is what I see. That whenever we gather, whenever we worship, whenever we open God's word, the presence of the Holy Spirit is so strong that people are brought to their knees by the fear of the Lord. And that sense of awe settles over his people as they worship. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is deeply at work in every heart. That's what I see. What, what do you see when you close your eyes? I wonder, what would a church look like that truly fears the Lord? That's a very compelling question to me. And what could, what would happen right here if we really did? We'll ask the worship team if they wouldn't mind reassembling Please. I realize that's a, a quite a strong word. It's a strong call. But, you know, for me, it's powerful because why wouldn't we want to give God the honor? If God is who he is, why wouldn't we want to do all that? You know, where do you think God is pulling us and drawing us? We know that God doesn't drive us. He doesn't whip us. He doesn't compel us. God invites us. And this is a lavish invitation that God has given to us, his people, to step into more. Why wouldn't we want to do that? 
I'm going to pray. I'm just going to pray about those pendulum swings. What I'd encourage you to do, I know there were five, that's probably four too many. I know it would be for my small brain. I'd encourage you just to, to ask the Lord to direct you to one and say, Lord, what could I do, what should I do in my life, in my church life, in my personal life to get that pendulum swinging over properly in the right direction? Let's pray. Father God, we're hearing the call to fear you. And we know that you're great and that you're mighty and that you're worthy. We, we need no convincing of that. The question, Lord, is what response does that demand? But what are you calling us to as individuals and as a church? What, what does it really, truly mean to come before you? How should we come before you? And Lord, I want to pray over those five pendulum swings. First one, Lord, would you just redirect us to live our life such that we're trying to please you rather than being sucked and seduced into peer pressure and the fear of man and the fear of missing out and the fear of offending and the fear of taking offense. And actually the recognition that if we please you, everything else will fall into line. And I want to pray for everyone in this room who may have felt themselves just torn and drawn and kind of seduced into people-pleasing, approval addiction. Would you break that over their lives, Lord? Would you show them today the power of the fear of the Lord that seeks primarily, first and foremost, to please you? And secondly, Lord, things are changing, shifting the sands of the world. Lord, we want to be sacred, not profane. Lord, in our attitudes, in our words, in our humors. Lord, we pray just for a reawakening of that conviction in our hearts that when we see something that is ugly, that is ungodly, that is impure and offensive, that it truly does offend us as it should. And if we become numbed and seared and cold to that, Lord, would you reawaken in us that godly fear that seeks after the holiness of God. And then thirdly, Lord, it's honor versus over-familiarity. And Father, we're so grateful that you have called us into intimacy. You are our friend. You do walk with us. You are our counselor and our comforter, Lord. But may we never forget that you're a God who is worthy of ultimate honor. And Lord, if we've allowed that pendulum just to swing a little bit too far in that one direction, Lord, would you re-correct it, redirect it today? So that in our lives and in our church gatherings, we will truly know what it means to honor you. And then, Lord, are we running from evil or are we running towards evil? And we know which is wise and we know which is foolish. We know which is godly. We know which is ungodly. But I pray, Lord, in every heart, as you dig and grow that fear of the Lord, that that we would become increasingly offended by evil. In fact, we would run from it, we would shun, we would do anything to, to get away from it, to move away from it. And thus create that fertile soil for you to move. 
And then lastly, Lord, are we quick to obey or are we quick to make excuses? We know what your word says. We know what you've called us to do. We know what those Ten Commandments say. We know what Jesus highlighted. We know what Paul taught. And I pray, Lord, that you would create in each of us a soft and responsive heart that wants to obey you as quickly and precisely and willingly as we possibly can. And if we find ourselves making excuses and just trying to shift it and remold it in our own image for our own purposes, Lord, with that fear of the Lord, descend upon us, rise up in our hearts and redirect us towards a desire to fear and honor and obey you because you are God. So Holy Spirit, now would you just minister that to our hearts? Show us, Lord, what we need to do, what we need to shift. But above all, Lord, would you remind us how great you are? Would you create in us a heart that is soft and ready to fall on our knees before the King of Kings and Lord of Kings?